2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Beloved, in Jesus Christ the grass withers and the flower falls, but this our God's word, it remains forever. So let us give our undivided attention to the reading of it. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one, and we have confidence in the Lord about doing, um, about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. And since the reading of our God's word, let us ask his blessing on our time in it. Father, we are blessed when we don't walk in the counsel of the wicked or dwell with the unrighteous. We don't just acknowledge and accept or agree with your word. Your word is our delight. It is life to us. And so we meditate on it day and night. And it feeds us, it nourishes us, and by your word we are firmly rooted and established. By your word we are immovable. And so we ask that you would bless our time in your word. Allow us to drink deeply of these life-giving waters. Through your word we ask that you would bear fruit in due season, so that we, like a tree firmly planted, would not wither, that we would not be blown away like the chaff, Watch over us and make us more like our righteous Savior, through whom we have all these blessings, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, so much of First and Second Thessalonians that we've been looking at. Uh, are about affliction, both present affliction and warning about future affliction getting worse. And, if we're to be honest, which isn't a bad thing, it can be a bit overwhelming. It's a lot to take in. And yet, as we draw close to the end, we're left with that question. What are we to do in the face of all this? How are we to respond and, and I think we know how we want to respond. <laughs> uh, those temptations run everywhere from uh, wanting to give up to wanting to retaliate or just run and hide. And maybe you could add 15 or 16 other options that tempt your heart. But I think the question that we all want to ask, the more important question, is how does God want us to respond? And that's what our passage is about. And I can sum up the correct response in three words. Prayer, confidence, and love. Prayer, confidence, and love. That is how we might sum up the correct response to all we've seen. Prayer for protection. Confidence in the Lord. And love for those who mistreat us. That is what the Lord tells us is the correct response. This is what God wants for us in hard times. And so as we look at, at this passage this morning, these five packed verses, we're going to see this. In the face of adversity, 
the Lord teaches us to pray for protection and for the salvation of those who mistreat us. That's what we want to see. And so we want to dive in and look at each of these three things in turn. Uh, first, prayer. And when I say pray for protection, I mean protection from your adversaries. At least that's what is being addressed in our passage. And so we have to ask, okay, well, who are the Christians' adversaries? And our passage has three in mind. The first we see in verse 2 with the word wicked, meaning the enemies of God. Uh, these are those who overtly challenge and oppose the truth, even champion uh, immorality and wickedness. They persecute Christians. And I think these are often the easiest adversaries to identify. Now the word, the next word in verse 2, translated evil men, is a bit more difficult. Because, because really what this word means is, is uh, out of place or misfits. And Paul is talking about those who are in the church afflicting others within the church. This is why he says not all have faith. There are there's weeds among the wheat. There's false people, false converts within the church. Paul writes about these often, and he's already mentioned them earlier in the book. These are they're people inside the church teaching falsely, stirring up divisions, and simply just making life hard. But the third, the great adversary, is the one that we often forget. And he's identified in verse 4 simply as the evil one, the devil. The Bible is emphatic that God's children are at war with unseen powers. Paul tells the Ephesians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's where he roots our war. And so the evil in verse 2 and the, the out of place in verse 2 are really simply, really just manifestations of the evil one's war against God's people. Now, any war has an objective. And so we want to ask, what are Satan's goals? What are his objectives? I think first, he wants to discourage you. He wants you to lose faith to give up. He wants to beat you down until you believe that it is simply not worth it to follow Jesus Christ and throw in the towel. And if he can't do that, he at least wants, you to, wants to distract you from loving and serving others. If he can get you so overwhelmed with your struggles you might just start to ignore others, or even better, in his mind, please not mine, <laughs> mistreat others. 
These are his goals. He wants to keep you from doing good. Now, Paul, the apostle, understands these realities better than most because he has been relentlessly the, the, the object of such attacks. I've been reading through Acts this week, and it's, it's overwhelming how much he has lied about, mistreated, um, ambushed. And Paul recognizes Satan as being behind these attacks. And he knows that the Thessalonians are going through similar attacks, similar troubles. And he recognizes that Satan is behind those as well. And so he prays for them. And he knows that only the Lord can give them the strength he need, they need. And so he seeks the Lord's mercy in their lives, confident that the Lord will protect them from the evil one. Verse 4. Beloved, we are no different. Because if God is in our church, we will face the same attacks from outside and from inside. The goals, Satan's goals will always be the same. To discourage, to exhaust, and to distract. And I believe, <laughs> I hope this doesn't come as a shock, that Jesus is in this church. And so I believe that we will suffer attacks from the enemy. And that means we need to pray. We need to pray hard. That, that God would preserve us, that, that he would deliver us, and that he would guard us against the evil one. Praying for protection then doesn't, doesn't mean that we're expecting God to take away all adversity. Paul doesn't both warn them that more is coming and that it's typical and then say, you know, if you just prayed, it wouldn't be there. That's not what Paul's saying. What he's, what he's talking about is praying that Satan would not be successful in the midst of that to discourage, to wear down, and to distract us. That's what our prayer should be. It's praying that we would remain strong in adversity, keeping our focus on Jesus. And, and, and Paul isn't being condescending here. He's not saying, oh, you're the kinds of Christians who need prayer. Think about how often Paul urges congregations to pray for him. To the Ephesians. Pray also for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chain that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Pray for me. Or, or to, to the congregation in Rome. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Or to the Thessalonian churches in his first letter, I love how simple he says, Brothers, pray for us. Paul had no confidence in his own strength. He didn't see himself as this super Christian. He 
He saw himself in desperate need of the Lord's strength in the midst of his trials. His confidence was, it was entirely in the Lord. And that led him to pray, and that led him to ask for prayer. And, that, and understanding all of this leads us to the second response to the attacks of our enemies. And it's, it's that with Paul to have confidence in the Lord. Look at verse 3. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you. This is, this is Paul's entire confidence. This is the conviction that leads him to pray. And that helps us to guard against misunderstanding what prayer is. Prayer is not uh, the ability to control or change God. Nor is it uh, simply a resignation or a giving up. Sometimes you hear people say, well, all we can do now is pray. You know, as if that's what you do when there's no hope. No, prayer is a confident seeking of God's will. Prayer flows out of a firm conviction of who God is and what he is doing. It's a response to the reality that the Lord is faithful. Prayer reorients you to God and to his plans. It teaches you to surrender your idols and it reminds you where your hope is. In other words, prayer is an act of faith and confidence. Let me, let me explain what I mean. When, when you need help, to whom do you go for help? Um, if, if your car breaks down, do you go to your favorite gardener? <laughs> right. No, you go for help to the ones you think are competent and able to help. And, and typically to those who love you and you believe want the best for you. Even if that means telling you the hard things that you need to hear. And you do all of, things, all of these things because you know, because you believe, because you are convinced that you will be better off than if you didn't. That's what going to God in prayer is like. Going to one who is competent and able, one who loves you and wants the best for you, and one who is willing to tell you the hard things if that's what you need. Um, Halsby in his book on prayer talks about how hard prayer is when we are fighting with God. When we are trying to get him to do our will and then he talks about how much that changes and how much prayer, how much easier prayer becomes when we stop trying to change God and we ask him to change us. It, it's, it's like stop, stopping to fight the current and to go with it. And prayer changes. Prayer focuses on who God is, and so it forces us to confess what we know about him. Uh, prayer leads us to surrender to his will and to pray, not my will, but your will be done. 
And most importantly, the act of prayer is, is bringing our problems to God and then surrendering those problems to God. And yes, that is hard, but it is so good. Because to pray is to relinquish control. To lay our burdens at his feet for him to do with as he wills. And while that's hard, it's also a wonderful comfort. It's when you're scared, it's when you're facing adversity that you need to pray the most. I'm not saying you don't need to pray at other times. But it's when things are hardest that you need to pray that your faith would stand strong, verse 3. That the Lord would protect you from those who afflict you, verse 2. That you would persevere. And all of those prayers need to be rooted in a deep confidence that the Lord loves you and is faithful. That's the conviction that informs everything else Paul says and prays in this passage. The reason that he can say so much about adversity and yet not lose hope is because he's absolutely convinced that the Lord is faithful and that he will establish and guard us against the evil one. Prayer is not wishful thinking. It's confidently seeking the Lord who loves you. It's running to him for comfort and for protection. We're to pray for protection. We're to have confidence in the Lord. But there's something else that we're called to do, and we find it in verse 5. It's that our, our hearts would be guided to the love and steadfastness of Christ. In other words, we are to have hearts of love. And to understand what, what this means, we need to look no further than, than how Jesus prayed while he was on the cross. You probably remember his words well. As his enemies, both from outside the church, the Romans, and with inside the church, the, the Pharisees and the, the high priests, and as Satan himself sought to destroy Jesus, do you remember his simple prayer? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. <laughs> In his absolute darkest moment, his greatest agony, abandoned and alone, lied about and mistreated. He interceded for those who were causing his pain. And I think we all read those words and we're, we're shocked because it's so absolutely contrary to our instincts. We're with, with James and John. Should we call down fire from heaven? And yet, that prayer on the cross should not have been shocking because if you've read the Old Testament, 
you know that this is the very air it breathes. Jesus warned it was coming uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, obviously. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He gave us that instruction. But again, all he's doing is reiterating what we've seen in the Old Testament from the beginning. The Bible is filled with, with the call to intercede for those who have caused them pain. Perhaps the most famous is at the end of the book of Job. After 40-something long chapters of pain and torment, God looks at Job's three counselors, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, who had spent so much time, possibly years, not comforting Job, but making his affliction worse. And then God says this, now there, to the three, Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Could you imagine? God's like, here's your only hope. The one whose life you've made miserable intercedes for you. What about Jonah? Who did God send him to intercede for? It was the Ninevites. The Nineveh was the capital city of, the, of Assyria. The ones that, who were afflicting the Israelites with everything they had. And God says, Jonah, go intercede. What about Joseph? who was called to rescue both the Egyptians who had imprisoned him falsely for many years and his own brothers who had sold him into slavery. The Egyptians' life and his brother's life became dependent upon Joseph's intercession. I'm sure if we wanted, we could add example after example. But all of these episodes were simply paving the way to understand why Jesus came into this world. He came to save his enemies. He came to bear their punishment for them. He came to remove their shame and he came to reconcile his enemies to himself. He said it plainly, I did not come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. The gospel is the story of Jesus coming to rescue those who afflict him. And it's there that we see his heart most clearly. This is the consistent message of the Bible. And so it's good and it's right for us to pray for, for protection from those who afflict us. But if you think that you are done when you've prayed this, you're missing something. You also need to pray for those who afflict you in love. Isn't that actually where our passage started? Verse 1, that the word of God would speed ahead to others as it had to the Thessalonians. 
I know it's been months since we started, but at the very beginning I rehearsed how the word came to the Thessalonians in Acts 17. Paul went to the Thessalonians. He went to Thessalonica, and, and there he was lied about, he was threatened, and he was inches from being killed. That's what he's talking about when he asks that, that for prayer, that his work of evangelism would bear fruit in those who he's witnessing to like it did to the Thessalonians. What's his response to the affliction that he's suffering as he continues to preach the word? It's not to call down fire from heaven. It's to seek the salvation of those who are mistreating him and to share the love of Jesus with them. As he says to, to the congregation in Rome, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Believe it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's true for us as individuals and it's true for us as a church. We must have a heart to see those who don't know Jesus come to faith. They'll mistreat us. They'll hate us. They will make our lives difficult. But our hearts must be directed to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Jesus Christ. That might simply start with asking God to give you a heart of compassion for those who mistreat you. To learn to see them as Jesus sees them. That's what it means to have the heart of Christ. Not to seek vengeance, but mercy for those who mistreat you and afflict you. And I know that, it's, I would say it's easy to say, but I don't know that it's easy to say. It's hard to say, but it's even harder to live. It's incredibly difficult to do. In other words, it's not something that any of us has the power in ourselves to accomplish. It, it takes the work. It takes the power of God's spirit. It takes new birth. It takes a new nature. And yet all of these things are exactly what we have in Jesus Christ who is faithful. And so we can pray with confidence that the, the Lord would enable us to have compassion on those who mistreat us. This is God's will. This is what he's doing in us, in our hearts, and in our minds. Because that's how he treated us. We heard it in our declaration of pardon this morning. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. So that's how we had faced adversity. We pray for protection. We have confidence in God. And we have hearts of love. We, are, we pray for those who afflict us that they might find the grace that we have found in Jesus. It's funny. It only takes about a half an hour to go through this passage. <laughs> but a lifetime to master it. None of these things are easy. 
They are the work of God's grace, and so we must be in prayer. And it's at times like this that it's important to remember that we are not alone. The Lord does not just tell us what to do and then sit back and watch and say, let me know when you got it mastered. I'll be over here. He is the one who is working within us to bring about what he commands. And so he is in us and we are in him. He tells us apart from him we can do nothing. But those, those who abide in Jesus Christ, to those, those he says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Pray boldly. So as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, that's the truth that's driven home. Because as surely as we eat the bread and we drink the wine, as surely as they enter into us, we are reminded that, that Jesus wants to know that he is in us by his Spirit. And that we do not face adversity alone, that we do not rely on our own strength to follow him. And so as you come to this table, my prayer is that in receiving the bread and wine, you hear Jesus declaring to you, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Amen. I'd like to ask the elders, Pastor Isaac, to come forward uh, that we might receive uh, this, this, this morning. Father, we confess that facing adversity is hard. You know our temptations and how we want to run, how we want to give up, or simply to retaliate. But you also know what we truly want, to love Jesus and to love others as he has loved us, to pray and to trust and remember that you are faithful. And so we ask that you would help us, that you would protect us from the evil one and from all his messengers, that you would strengthen our confidence in you and that you would give us the very heart of Christ so that we would love those who do us harm. And through that, you would bring many to repentance and faith. We ask all this through him who loved us with his dying breath. Amen.